Welcome to the Alan and Avery podcast. Today we are going to be talking to you about agreements to agree as a matter of English law. My name is Helen Biggin and I'm counsel in the London litigation team. As part of this podcast, we'll be looking at interesting and tricky issues regarding agreements to agree and how you can avoid commitments that you think might be binding. Joining me today is Peter Watson, who is a consultant in the London litigation team, and also Chris Mitchell, a senior associate in the structured asset finance team here in London. So, Peter, what have you been seeing over the past few weeks, particularly where we are at the minute with COVID-19? Have any particular issues been raised by clients? Thanks, Helen. Uh, Well, as you know, from a litigation point of view, we have a regular uh, stream of clients who uh, are looking at commercial commitments they've entered into and querying what sort of commitment they've made. These clients are principally from the finance side of the business for example, owner lessors or banks. And the rate of of inquiry has certainly increased since the beginning of the year. Quite often, clients are looking at commitments they may have entered into some months ago where negotiations have stalled or not been pushed forward. And what they're looking for is an answer to whether or not changed market conditions or changed circumstance obliged them to carry on negotiating or seeking to conclude an agreement with their counterparty in circumstances where they would rather not. Yes, because obviously, I mean, there can be many legitimate reasons why clients in the position that you described, Peter, want to to walk away from their negotiations or don't want to follow through with their commitments. I mean, obviously, at the minute, there is a a squeeze on financing generally and, and people want to hold on to cash rather than expend it. And obviously, people are looking at a number of ways in which they can avoid their contractual obligations or terminate those commercial commitments that they've made. And we've seen or I've certainly seen a lot of queries coming in about failure to meet conditions precedent or or anticipated conditions precedent, reliance on other contractual clauses such as material adverse change clauses or force majeure, and also other common law issues such as uh, the doctrine of frustration and whether the contract you are a party to has been frustrated because it's now physically or impossible to uh, perform the obligations that they're under. But I think what we are going to focus on in, in this podcast is whether there is any legal commitment to carry through with whatever commercial commitments a party may have made. Chris, uh, just over to you. What are you seeing at the minute? Picking up on this point, I think what we're seeing generally falls into two categories. And the first is agreements to, for example, lease that are set out in letters of intent or heads of terms where there's an intention or a a commitment, which I would say using virtual inverted commas, where the parties set out the key terms to which an aircraft will be leased to an airline, to a lessee. And behind this, there can be other commitments that sit with it. For example, a lessor seeking to purchase an aircraft from, for example, Boeing, or to assume a lessee's obligation to purchase an aircraft under a a sale and leaseback arrangement. Secondly, there's an agreement by a bank or a financial institution to provide funding for the purchase of an aircraft from a manufacturer. In both instances, the capital commitments here are huge and can amount to hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, Chris, I mean, as you know, when these issues pop up, from a litigator's point of view, what we say is we need to get back to basics. 
and we need to analyze what obligations, if any, uh, arise in the circumstances. So the first question is, what have the parties agreed to? Where are the documents? Where's the evidence? And then the next question is, well, what does that agreement, whether it's in a letter of intent or in heads of terms, what does that agreement commit them to? Nothing or everything. So stepping back, just to remind the listeners the basis of the legal analysis here, an enforceable contract under English law requires three elements, offer, acceptance, and consideration. But unless the parties each intend to be legally bound, an enforceable contract cannot be formed. So if one or both the parties doesn't regard its offer or counteroffer as being legally binding, then, as a matter of theory, a binding contract cannot be created. But as we litigators say, matters aren't always that simple. So if I state I've got no intention to be contractually bound by an offer, then the presumption is at that stage there is no enforceable agreement. However, matters move on. So parties negotiate. That's what they intended to do. And if it later appears from my actions, judged objectively, it's not what I think about it, it's what a neutral third party would think about it, then I may well have made an agreement, or at least agreed on key parts. And therefore, I've committed myself to a binding contract, notwithstanding the fact that I started out saying I don't want to be contractually bound. Thanks, Peter. I think it's at that point, it's important to take a step back and think about what you have agreed and, and actually have you agreed to agree. It's obviously a well-established and long-established point of English law that an agreement to agree is not enforceable. This principle was confirmed by the House of Lords as it was then, almost 30 years ago. So this isn't a new principle of law that we're dealing with. However, um, as we discuss later, the context of and the wording used in an agreement to agree might produce a result that you're not intending. It might actually mean that you are bound and it is an agreement. Chris, have you seen any documents or any facts where this situation has arisen? Well, Helen, I'm picking up again in terms of heads of terms or letters of intent. I mean, the fact that these documents are described as such a heads of terms or letter of intent brings with it no special treatment. These aren't terms of art. There's no presumption that they are in not intended to create a binding agreement. And so they have to be construed by analysing the words that have been used by the parties. Now, hopefully there is a clear statement within those documents to the effect that that document is not intended to create a legal relationship, that it is subject to contract and subject to the execution of further documentation. That's a formulation that is commonly seen that we see and would be extremely difficult, we would think, for anyone to succeed in establishing that a binding contract existed before you entered into um, a a written agreement. Yeah, but Chris, so what you described there are three elements, and one of those is the term subject to contract. Um, And I agree that that term used in isolation is very helpful, but it doesn't necessarily get you all the way. Now, one of the reasons for that is that under English law, as you know, very few contracts have to be in writing to be enforceable. Those exceptions being broadly guarantees and contracts to sell interest in land. So unless further precautions are taken, 
going back to my earlier point, discussions could reach a stage where one party could allege that the terms are sufficiently certain and comprehensive that a binding contract had been made, taking into account all the evidence available at the time. And that will include emails, it will include the draft documentation, and perhaps most dangerously, oral exchanges between the parties, telephone calls uh, and the such like. So, you know, the difficulties arise. So I think we're then looking at how we can avoid such difficulties from arising in the first place and from getting into arguments about whether or not the agreement is binding. And one of the ways that you can do this is it's quite a simple step, really, but it's by marking the, the draft documentation and any correspondence surrounding the documentation and the negotiations as subject to contract. This obviously confirms the intention of the parties not to be legally bound. And it does reinforce an argument that subject to contract also encompasses the condition that no one is bound until the draft documentation that's subject to negotiation is executed. However, it should not be forgotten that if a dispute arises, a court will interpret the words used by the parties in a way that's least favourable to the party seeking to deny that the contract was binding. So if a letter of intent was expressed to be subject to contract, for example, but it did not mention within it that uh, the commitment was also conditional on the execution of the sale purchase agreement, for example, or the aircraft lease agreement, then the court may conclude that a signed written agreement was not an essential part of the commitment to be bound. And unfortunately, the burden of discharging that presumption is a heavy one and would fall on the party that was seeking to claim that, the, that a binding contract had not been concluded. I think it's also worth mentioning here that letters of intent or heads of terms may also contain conditions that the commitment is subject to various internal approvals, uh, such as board approval or credit committee approval. These sorts of terms are going to be very helpful to support arguments that there is no binding commitment being made. Okay, so let's assume my commitment is not expressed to be subject to contract. Helen, Peter, from a litigation point of view, surely I can still rely on the principle that an English court will not enforce an agreement to agree. I always thought that an English court would not seek to put in place contract terms where parties had not agreed to them. Well, you're, yeah, Chris, you're right. I mean, that principle works up to a point. But once again, back to basics, the starting position is what terms have the parties described their future commitments in? I mean, that is quite an important point. For example, if the heads of terms or the letter of intent state that the parties shall agree, then that's obviously a very different proposition to the wording to be negotiated or to be agreed. In relation to the term shall agree, a court will have regard to the detail of the proposed agreement that one would typically see outlined in the pre-contractual documentation. The greater the detail, the more a court might be prepared to imply terms based on market practice to decide that a binding contract had been created. The risk is increased if the parties are already in a contractual relationship. So, for example, if the parties already have a binding and fully executed aircraft lease agreement and are simply seeking to lease another aircraft, this will increase the risk that a court might be prepared to imply terms. So the greater the level of detail covered in the pre-contractual documentation, the greater the risk that an agreement to agree, especially expressed in the term shall agree, or where the relevant contractual relationship exists between the parties, may not provide sufficient protection to avoid creating a binding obligation.
So clearly some warnings to, to be aware of there. But let's take another example. What if I have decided that I don't want to conclude the proposed deal, but for one reason or another, I continue my negotiations. I hoping, for example, that the counterparty will pull out because its own market or its business has deteriorated. Well, Chris, that's where Peter and I come uh, charging over the hill as a cavalry, <laughs> uh, because that could be a dangerous strategy. On the one hand, all the usual principles apply. However, you run the risk that there is a waiver of relevant rights or protections contained within the document with the heads of terms or the letter of intent or whatever your document is. You may also run the risk that your counterparty may argue that you're stopped from running such arguments. For example, you can't rely on the requirement that any agreement is subject to the execution of a written agreement in those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, Helen, that's right. And again, basics require an effective waiver because it's a change of contract. An effective waiver requires consideration. It requires value to be given for that waiver. But uh, a court may be keen to find consideration if it thinks one of the parties has behaved badly. Now, strictly, I, I would think the counterparty would have to show that had it known the true position, it would have successfully made alternative arrangements with a third party, but for the fact you strung it along. But we've seen cases recently in other contexts where the courts have overlooked traditional requirement consideration in the context of variation. So one can't be confident that traditional approach would necessarily be followed, particularly if the court was you know, frowning uh, on your behaviour. And then on the estoppel front, again, the burden is high and the basis of the estoppel would be the counterparty essentially having to succeed on an argument that it relied first on a clear representation from you concerning the terms of the contract and that it would be tantamount to a, a sort of fraud to allow you to walk away from a commitment merely because it wasn't in the form of a signed agreement. And we've seen these arguments succeed in guarantee cases and in cases involving land transfers where the court determine the terms of the contract by reference to draft documentation, by reference to correspondence and oral exchanges, as we refer to above. But they override the requirement that the actual contract should have been in writing signed by both parties, even if that term is in the heads of term or the letter of intent. The key lesson here is that if you have decided that you don't want to go ahead with the deal that's been negotiated or planned because the position has changed financially or, or, or the, the risks have changed in a way that you're not comfortable with, then it's important that you let your counterparty know as soon as possible. I appreciate that it's a difficult or, or maybe an unpleasant message to give, particularly if, you, if your counterparty is a long-standing and important customer or client, but it's so much better to give that message earlier than to risk ending up uh, in a serious dispute with the counterparty and potentially with a court deciding that you are committed to a deal that you no longer want to pursue. Okay, so there's a lot to consider and reflect on there, but Taking an example further then, I've entered into an agreement to negotiate. I've entered into an LOI. I've taken account of the advice you've given, Helen, Peter. It says subject to contract and all the rest of it. Moving forward then, am I under an obligation to negotiate in good faith? Chris, that's an excellent question, but I'm going to dodge at the moment. The examination of the issue of good faith is going to be the subject of a separate 
podcast because it's such a uh, fast-moving area of English law. Thank you, Peter. So in conclusion, if you do have a commercial agreement set down in an LOI or similar document which you no longer wish to pursue, then it is possible to exit such agreements if you have been clear from the outset that there was no intention to be legally bound by the terms of the LOI. The easiest way to do this is firstly to ensure your LOI states that any agreement contained therein only becomes legally binding upon the execution of binding documentation. And secondly, to label any communications or drafts documents relating to the commercial agreements as subject to contract. Finally, I'd like to thank Peter and Chris for their time with this podcast and I hope you found it both helpful and enjoyable. Music.